Let's continue to pray. Oh, Father, we have sung and we continue in prayer to ask that you would show us Christ. To whom shall we go? For you have the words of life. There is no other book. There is no other message. There is no other good news. Only you, Christ, can give us the word that will bring us to eternal life. And so, we pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things from your law. Open our minds to understand your word. Oh, Father, open our hearts that all the earth may gladly receive her King. Joy to the world. Show us Christ for the very first time. Show us Christ, though we came this morning thinking that we already knew Him. Show us Christ for the millionth time, again, with fresh power. Help us to see and to save Your your beloved Son, with whom You are well pleased. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we humbly and expectantly pray, amen. Good to be back here. I was gone last week speaking at the next conference in Orlando. And uh, one of the things when I speak someplace, people will come up to you and say, I read Just Do Something and I got married, which I always like to hear. Some people say, I gave this book to my boyfriend six months ago and he still hasn't gotten the clue. Uh, sometimes people will say, I, I read your blog, and they usually say, I really especially like Monday morning where you do those funny videos. So that's, that's what I do to serve the church, to do funny videos. And uh, someone came up to me this past time and said, you know, I listen to your sermons, and et cetera, et cetera, and then said, would you please go back and tell uh, the other preachers that preach at your church that I love listening to them too, and I love to hear that, because when I'm, when I'm gone, I know that you are getting wonderful Bible teaching and are well-taught and well-fed, so thank you to Ben and Pat, and I know Andrew Cheesebro, one of our campus staff, did a great job last Sunday evening, and our pastoral interns who have preached and other staff members, it's a great joy to know that the Word of God is well-taught here. Sunday after Sunday, I hope. And we want to teach the Word of God. And so we have been looking these past several weeks at a sermon series on the Word of God, the doctrine of Scripture. And starting today for the next four sermons, I want to talk about the four attributes of Scripture. Now, you may think of the attributes of God, familiar with that language, His omnipotence and His omnipresence and His omniscience and sovereignty and His mercy, holiness. But theologians also talk of attributes of Scripture. What are the characteristics of God's holy Word? That's what we want to look at for the next several weeks. Historically, theologians have highlighted four attributes of Scripture. Scripture's authority, its clarity, sometimes you see the older word, perspicuity, which means clarity, but since that word isn't very clear what it means, we'll just say clarity. 
authority, clarity, necessity, and sufficiency. Each of these attributes is meant to protect the truth about the Bible and to safeguard against some error. So the authority of Scripture teaches that the last word goes to God's Word, that the last word to arbitrate between competing truth claims does not go to councils or to the church or to a science or to human experience, but to the Word of God, the authority of God's Word. The second attribute is clarity, which means the saving message of Jesus' death and resurrection and faith in Him is taught in such a way that it can be understood even by the simplest and the most uneducated among us. Now, it does not... We're not saying that every part of Scripture is going to be obvious. No, there are many hard parts of Scripture. That's why you have to study it and work hard at it. But the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And even apart from official church interpretation, we believe that the Bible is clear enough that you can read it, you can hear it, and you can be saved. Clarity. Third, the necessity of Scripture. General revelation is what God shows us about Himself in nature. Romans 1 says you can look at the world around you and you can see there's a God and He's powerful and He's wise, and, and yet it is not enough information to cause you to put faith in Christ and trust in His death and resurrection. And so you need Scripture. We need God to speak to us, to tell us how to live, to tell us who Christ is, to tell us how to be saved. Personal experience and human reason are not enough. We need Scripture. And then the fourth attribute is the sufficiency, which means we do not need any new revelations or other sources of knowledge to get us to heaven, to tell us what we need to know for life and godliness. Now, this does not mean the Bible tells us everything we want to know or everything we could possibly know about everything else. So, study chemistry and study business and study biology, and the Bible's not going to tell you everything about everything, but it tells us everything we need to know to put our faith in Christ and to follow Him and live in holiness. Authority, clarity, necessity, sufficiency. That's what we want to look at for these coming weeks. And you could describe the attributes in this way. God's Word is final, God's Word is understandable, God's Word is necessary, and God's Word is enough. It's final, understandable, necessary, and enough. And we want to look at the first of those attributes this morning, the authority of Scripture. When it comes to knowing God, knowing the human heart, knowing Jesus Christ, knowing the way of holiness, knowing the way of salvation, knowing how we can live in eternal happiness, God's Word must be given the last word. Scripture is authoritative and it is final. And on every matter in which Scripture means to speak, it must have the last word. That's the authority of Scripture. Now, we're going to see that in the story that we are about to read, and we'll kind of come back to it 
at the end. But I want you to turn, if you're not there already, to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, as we look at Paul, as he visits these two towns, one in Thessalonica and one in Berea, met some brothers here from Berean church, so welcome. There's only one passage in Scripture that's about the Bereans, and these guys got it, so they're just visiting and see if anyone comes from Corinth or... Detroit, is that in the Bible? I don't know. Grand, even Grand Rapids is not in the Bible. But Berea is, and Thessalonica. So follow along. What we're going to see is some commonalities in Paul's approach in both towns and then some differences, and in particular, how these two groups of people approach the Word of God. So follow along, beginning at verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia... They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, "'This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ.' And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, "'These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the Word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. I want you to notice a few things in common as Paul ministers in both of these cities. First, look at Paul's approach in both places. You see in verse 1, he comes to Thessalonica and he starts in the synagogue. We see in verse 10, he comes to Berea and he starts in the synagogue. So when he travels from Thessalonica and then about 45 miles away down to Berea, he starts in the same place. When you think about worship, sometimes we think worship in the church is modeled after the temple, but really the temple was about sacrifice, and the sacrifice is fulfilled on the cross. The early church found its model for worship not in the temple, but in the synagogue. The synagogues were much more what we would think of as churches. There there was only one temple in Jerusalem, but there were synagogues all throughout the Roman Empire where the Jews were spread. 
And the synagogue would have a synagogue ruler. And he was not like the senior pastor. He was more like the worship coordinator. And he would organize the services and plan for speaking. And sometimes people will, will talk as if, you know, the way we do church now, it's so wrong and it's modern or it's enlightenment or it's western. You have somebody who stands up and gives a lesson and speaks from the Bible. And you, know, you have to realize this is what they did in the synagogue. This is the pattern that the early church inherited was someone who would speak and unroll the scroll and give a word from God's Word. The synagogue ruler would uh, understandably welcome different traveling experts in to speak. And so, Paul would be one of these. Paul had, uh, he was very learned, he was educated, he was a Pharisee. He says in Philippians 3, he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, who was one of the most famous rabbis. So, here comes Paul into town, and Paul says, can I speak? And yeah, the, the synagogue ruler says, sure, by all means. And so, he would come, and whenever he had the opportunity, he would start out in the synagogue. And he did it for three Sabbath days. Now, we know he was there for longer than three weeks, and he was in other parts of the city, but at least for three Sabbaths, he taught there in the synagogue. He does it in both places. Notice also the language used to describe what he does. This may be surprising to you. You see verse 2. As Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Verse 3, explaining and proving. Into verse 3, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you. Verse 4, some of them were persuaded and then down in verse 13, we see that the Jews in Thessalonica learned the Word of God was also proclaimed at Berea. So, you see the language to describe what Paul's doing? He's not just engaging in conversation or having a dialogue. He's reasoning, persuading, proclaiming. I wonder how much of the preaching in this country could be described as proclamation, reasoning, and persuading. This is what we're trying to do is persuade you of something that is true. See, notice Paul never went into town and just asked people to believe just to believe. You got to have faith, a faith, a faith, a faith. You know, that, that's not what he said. He, he, never, he never tried to bypass the mind and put the pressure only on the will or on the emotions. This is when you know that preaching can be effective and very dangerous. And the preacher knows how to put pressure on your will, you got to do it, you got to go, or pressure just on your emotions, aren't you feeling it, and, and bypasses the mind. Now, we want to get to the will, we want to get to the affections, but Paul goes through the mind. He's not trying to just whip them into a frenzy. He wants them to be convinced of what is true. And part of the challenge, is it not, in our day is to get people to even care about the category of truth, to even accept that the law of non-contradiction matters. I mean, you can talk to people. I'm not trying to poke fun. I'm just saying you can talk to people. Say, well, I can't believe in the resurrection because dead people don't come back to life. Oh, but I believe in aliens for sure. 
Okay, what, what evidence do you have for this? What, it doesn't matter. You could say, well, I, I think that the gospel of Judas is the real gospel. And you can show them how, no, this is anachronistic. No reputable scholar gives this any credence. No one thinks this is, was actually Judas writing. And here's all the evidence for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the person can still say, yeah, I don't care. I think this is kind of cool. We don't even have the category of dealing with truth to persuade. So part of what we need to do is just create the plausibility structures that arguments and logic and reason and persuasion actually matter to God. Truth is not simply what you feel like it should be. Now, deep down, you all know that. You you don't like it when somebody else just comes to you and just says, I feel like this is true. Now, you don't, you don't care if it's, you know, they, f- they feel like Smurfs rule the world or something. Okay, well, go for it, man. You got a Smurf theology or whatever. But as soon as they say something that affects you, well, I just feel like Smurfs rule the world and you all ought to worship the Smurfs. And if you don't, we'll throw you in prison. Well, then it matters what you believe and you don't want someone to just believe because they feel like it. What are our reasons and incidentally, a, a, a question, and this is not a rhetorical question, it's an honest question for us to think about as a church. Where are these synagogue-like places? I mean, when I read this, I think, it's amazing. Paul could go in, and he didn't just have 30 seconds. You know when you're on, the, you're on a flight somewhere, you're on the bus, you know, like, I should try to say something about Jesus. And you're just trying to squeeze it in somewhere, and someone, you know, just... You know, this bus, is, uh, is this bus going to cross Grand River? Yeah, it is. Speaking of the cross, wanted to, uh, just didn't know if you knew about Jesus and He died on the cross for you and got to go. And then, yes, I did it. I did it. I'm going to share that with my small group. Okay, you know, just, yeah, share it. Share it whenever you can. But don't you find increasingly people need more than just a paragraph squeezed in somewhere? Because you say you need, to, you need to believe in Jesus because He forgives you from your sins and you have a gulf between you and God. And the person's going, what? Me and God are tight. God loves everyone. God loves everything about me. I don't have any, there's no gulf here. I don't, even, I don't know what you're, you're talking about. So I'm thinking, where are the, where are the synagogues? Where are the places that, that people can go and have three weeks that they can go and explain. Is it, is it on the internet? Uh, certainly you can invite people to church and you can, you can hear a message that way. Christianity Explored can do that. Uh, an app, a tract, a book, a, a public lecture. We have a university. That, so th- we're, we're supposed to be you know, in a community. People want ideas. They want to learn things. Where are these synagogues? Where is a kind of synagogue in your life where you can come in, you're already an insider, you're already respected. Okay, I'm thinking of all of you who you work in a place. It's not all Christians there, I know. You're, you're with people that have all sorts of different ways of looking at the world. Now, I know you can't just get up and, all right, Tim's going to give the sales report. Well, the sales report comes from the Gospel of Luke. Would you please turn there? No, I know you, I know you can't do that. But, but where are the ways where you're already trusted, you're already an insider, and you can say something about Jesus? That's, that's what Paul was doing. And look, too, in both cities that the general response is the same. In general, 
You see verse 4, some of them were persuaded in Thessalonica. Verse 12, many of them believed. Okay, so both places, somebody believes. But then verse 5, the Jews were jealous, so some of them didn't believe. And then down in Berea, we see in verse 13, the Thessalonians stirred up the crowd there and agitated them, so some of the people in the crowd did not believe. You got to remember this. If you speak the truth long enough, wide enough, patient enough, and clear enough, there will be people who believe it. Now, for all of you who, all, like me who have been in the church your whole life or a long time, we, we cease to really believe this. We think, really? Can people really? Like, they, they hear it and they, and they say, I do want to know more. I mean, we, we doubt that that happens, but it happens. You've got to believe it. There are people God has chosen for eternal life, and when they hear the word, they will respond. And just as importantly, you need to realize that if you speak the word clear enough, long enough, wide enough, and deep enough, some people will hate you. They will. Now, listen, this is not, not an excuse. You know, somebody out there is thinking, yes, I knew I could be a jerk. I knew it. I knew it, and now I can feel spiritually excited about being a jerk to people. No, that's not what he's saying, but this is true. People will hate it. Whenever Paul went, some people believe, other people wanted to kill him. Kill him. The, the two categories in the New Testament are foolishness and scandal. The, the Greeks thought the gospel was foolishness. Come on, Really? One God, and He came to earth. He died. Really? Foolishness? That's all you got? You don't have anything more sophisticated than this? You just got to believe in your God? And that's foolishness. That's, well, that's what dopes believe. And then on the other hand, it was scandal to the Jews because the Jews said, no way. A Christ does not die. The Messiah does not get crucified. And those are the two categories in our day and every day. There are people that will look at the gospel and at the Word of God. I'll say, that's ridiculous. Maybe academics, maybe scientists, maybe skeptics. Oh, we want to be winsome, we want to do apologetics, and yet sometimes they will just think it's foolish. And then there will be those for whom the Word of God is a scandal. You talk to a Muslim, maybe there's one here, I don't know, they say that Jesus was the Son of God? The Son of God? No, that is scandalous, that's offensive. Or you talk to someone who says that surely there must be many ways to God, and you Christians are saying there's only one way to God? It's offensive. Actually, as Christians, we say every single way leads to God, but only one way leads to God in a good way. <laughs> every way is going to lead to God. You all will meet God. Only one way will be happy. Or certainly in our day, with any Christian view on sexuality or gender, you will be thought not only backwards, but wicked. This is such… This, this will not go away. You know this is not going away. Every Christian will have to deal with, will have to answer the question, what do you think about homosexuality? You just will not be able to 
avoid it, and we have to be patient, we have to be kind, we have to be winsome, we have to be loving, we have to acknowledge our faults, and we must not compromise on the Word. And you can do all of that, and sometimes you will still be reviled. You have to understand that it will happen. They wanted to kill Paul. Belief and unbelief. Now, I want you to notice the differences. I want to give you three ways in which the Thessalonians approached the Word of God and three ways the Bereans did, and this will speak to the authority of Scripture and how we ought to submit to it. So, three ways the Thessalonians approached the Scriptures poorly. Number one, their judgment is clouded by personal prejudice. You see verse 5, their judgment is clouded by personal prejudice. We, we like to say that we reject the Word of God because I, I can't agree with this and I don't see this reason, and, that, and that's true. Some people really have those intellectual problems. But so often, we don't, we don't get there. We're just clouded by personal prejudice. Like these Jews in verse 5, the Jews were jealous. That's what they don't like. They, they can't hear the Word of God because Paul is popular. Not going to like Paul because he's popular. They're envious. Envy always comes with those who are closest to us. If you love basketball, you're probably not, you know, you're 15 years old, you're probably not, "Ah, I'm so jealous of LeBron. I just, and Dwayne Wade, I just, ah, I'm just so envious. No, who you're envious of is the other kid on your team who started and you had to sit on the bench. It's it's the person closest. So, So Paul was a Jew. Paul had their scriptures, and he's getting all this attention and they're jealous. And because of their jealousy, they're clouded. They can't even hear what He has to say from the Scriptures. People will dismiss the Word of God for all sorts of reasons. You may look and say, I don't like the way that guy dresses. I don't like his politics. The music was too loud. The music was too boring. I knew a mean Christian once. It's true. The only person who's never met a mean Christian is the person who's never met a Christian, okay? You're going to meet a, a, a bad one. You just are. It's not acceptable, but it's the way it is, and some people, they have that experience and that person in their life, and so they don't, they don't listen. It's just the rest of Scripture is just clouded out by personal experience and prejudice. Or some of you, you may be sitting there and you think, look, no one in my sphere, no one in my academic realm, no one in my family, no one from my culture believes this, so I can't believe it. And you know what? There's others of you here, maybe called teenagers, and you think, everyone in my family believes this, everyone in my church believes it, everyone who's ever taught me has believed this, and I cannot believe it because they want me to so bad. That happens. It's pride. Sometimes sin clouds our judgment. We, we, we have sins we want to do, and so we won't listen to the Scripture. You know this happens. You, you say, I've already decided I want to do this. I want to live like this. I want to have sex like this. I want to drink like this. I, want to, I, I'm already, I decided this, so I'll listen to the Word, but if it says what I've already decided, I'm, I'm, I'm not listening. Have you heard this, this quote before from Aldous Huxley, scientist, famous unbeliever, 
critic of Christianity. He said in an earlier generation, for myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. That's candor. He says, yeah, we, one of the main reasons we developed a philosophy of meaninglessness is because it made our morality meaningless. We wanted this sexual freedom, and we devised a philosophy that would feed into that freedom. We can be clouded by personal prejudice. Here's the second thing with the Thessalonians. They were blind to their own inconsistencies. I know Christians can have inconsistencies. I'm well aware of that. But those of you maybe who are skeptics, those of you, maybe, maybe no one even knows that you have all these, these issues, questions with Christianity. I, I just want you to be willing to see you may have inconsistencies. You think, I cannot believe in this religion of propositional truth. Unlike that proposition. If there's one thing I can't stand, I really can't stand those stupid, jerky, closed-minded Christians. That, in, that tolerance? No one can tell me my beliefs are wrong, and shame on you for having yours. There's inconsistencies. And a similar thing is going on in this passage. Do you see it? Look at verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're acting against the decrees of Caesar, and the people and the authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. So, do you see the... The irony here? Here's our charge against Paul and Silas. They are upsetting the status quo. They are disrupting the peace and tranquility and turning everything upside down. And what are we going to do about it? We're going to get a mob and we're going to storm Jason's house and we're going to rip him out and bring him out here because they're upsetting the peace. Sort of blind to that? It, they get this rabble, verse 5 in the ESV says, wicked men of the rabble. The, the word literally means market people. The agora, the market, that's the Greek word, or agoraphobia, agoraphobia, fear of, the mar- fear of public places. Well, this is the plural of the market. These are market people. One Greek dictionary referred to them as loafers. Another commentary said lowlifes. Okay, so don't be these people. These are, these are guys. I'm just guessing they're guys. And they're, they're just, they don't have anything to do. And they're just kind of hanging around and they just sort of rabble. And someone says, you want to go throw stuff? And okay. You want to go, oh, you want to go rip open a house? Yeah, all right. I was talking to a, a, a Christian I know, lives in one of the countries that had 
part of the Arab Spring and all those uprisings, which the jury's out on whether those are going to be good or bad for the region. But I said, man, there's still, I hear in the news, there's riots and protests and what's going on. And he said, basically, there's a lot of young men in the city who don't have jobs, don't have anything to do, and at night they like to break things and throw things and set things on fire. So that, that, that's, this is the sort of people, these rabble, okay, then they get a mob. And the point is, the Thessalonians cannot see the inconsistency of their charge. They're blind to their own way of life. I just, I just wonder, friend, who does not know Christ, doubting Christ, you have these issues with, with Christians, and I don't doubt that some could be legitimate. We have issues for sure. But, but just think, maybe there's inconsistencies. Just think, there, there's some people that will say, well, you Christians, you Christians, you just mindlessly submit to this authority, and you just, you just in lockstep, and you just believe everything, and you do everything, you never deviate from it. And the person who says it never, ever has a single opinion that's any different than Jon Stewart on The Daily Show or Fox News, the equal opportunity offenders. <laughs> we all have an authority. We all look to someone who's giving us guidance, who's telling us what to think. Or maybe there's an inconsistency of life. Like everyone else is so judgmental, not me. Everyone else is a hypocrite, but I'm pure through and through. Everyone else is, is preaching their morality, forcing their morality on me, but not me. And I can't believe you're not drinking fair trade coffee. You see, any? everyone in our culture is preaching morality. Everyone is. And without getting into, into politics, you just have to realize all of the debates in our culture, I mean, think of the language in which they're described. I mean, someone who says abortion is, is good, they're, not, they're, making a, they're trying to make a moral case. It's about freedom. It's about rights. I mean, everyone is speaking in these moral categories. It's about fairness. It's about justice. It's about freedom. It's about love. It's about companionship. Everyone is preaching a morality. So if you're just going to back away from the fray and say, well, I can't, well, who am I? I'm a Christian. I can't force my morality on Everyone is advocating for some form of what they think is the good life, the fair life, and it's Christians that to be willing to say, informed by Scripture, you're informed by TV, you're informed by philosophy, we're informed by Scripture, we all, we're informed by different things, and it's not just Scripture, though, it's also what will be good for our world, our society. You come, and of course you're going to make moral arguments. You can't avoid it. And so don't think you, you, you can have this inconsistency. The Thessalonians didn't see it. And here's the third thing. So they're, they're clouded by this personal prejudice. They're blind to their inconsistencies. And third, they attacked people instead of advancing arguments. You see in verse 6, this verbal abuse. They've turned the world upside down. You see in verse 7, they, they are manipulating, they're twisting the truth. They say, look, these Christians are saying that, that, that they're violating Caesar. Well, yes and no. Yeah, yes, they were saying Jesus is king. 
but not the way they meant it. They meant, oh, they're insurrectionists, they're rebels, they want to overthrow. No, the Christians were always saying, you submit to the governing authorities, you pray for the emperor. So they're manipulating, they're twisting their words, they're putting the worst possible construct on their motives. And then they, they, they physically attack them. Verse 5 through 9, they ransack Jason's home. I always found it strange that, oh yeah, Jason, Jason's a name in the, but it just doesn't seem like it should be in the, in the Bible. Like there's an Amanda or a Stephanie somewhere and Jason, but Jason and the Argonauts, that Greek story, that's part of that. So Jason was a very popular name. They come in, they look for the men, they want to bring them out, they make them post bond, bail to be free. And this is, a, this is an extremely organized mob as far as mobs go because you see in verse 13, when they heard the Word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too. They walked 45 miles. Okay, we're going to take a two-day walk to get there to stir up the crowd because we so hate what Paul's saying. Now, I understand that Christians have been criticized at times for attacking instead of dealing with arguments. You can throw out your examples, witch trials, crusades, certainly lots of things, the history there we could go into, and certainly there are times when Christians have been guilty of fighting with worldly weapons. But the same thing happens on the other side with the opposition to the Word of God. You just need to consider that often there is not a real dealing with arguments there is an attack. What is it if, if you label someone anti-science, anti-women, anti-gay, hate speech? Not that, that's, there, I mean, that's just a, a, a shutter-upper. Who, 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 who wants any of those things? What? I don't. I don't want to embrace any of those labels. But they're, they're just a form of, there you are. If you, if you say that, if you say, I dare you, I dare you to say that. Yep, boom, you got that label. It's not dealing with any of the arguments, any of the rationale. Attack. The Thessalonians were not open to considering, to considering. Listen, Christians, we have nothing to fear from the facts. We have nothing to fear in intellectual inquiry, nothing to fear from academic investigation. We have nothing to fear to say, let's look at all the ideas, let's look at the best ideas, let's look at the history. I'm not afraid of any of that. Okay? Don't be afraid of that. And I also want to say to those of you who may not know Christ, have you ever really sincerely considered the arguments for Christianity? Has it just been blinded by personal prejudice, just clouded out by what you want it to say, just more attacking? Have you ever really considered? The Thessalonians were just on the attack. I want you to see the Bereans, though, as we close. Three ways in which they're different in their approach to the Scriptures, and it's all found in verse 11. You see, first of all, they were eager to hear the Scriptures. They received it eagerly. That's what made them noble. There was no prejudice to prevent them from hearing the Word fairly. They came to the Scripture 
and said, we are eager to hear from God. Is that how you come? I know some, some sermons are better than others, some preaching's more effective than others. But when you come on Sunday or when you open your Bible on Monday, do you come expectant and eager or are you bored and defiant? The, these Bereans said, we're eager. You, you're going to teach us the Word. You're going you're to teach us the Bible. We want to hear it. How, how, do you, how do you approach God's Word? It's like your phone, you know, now all the phones, you can see what number is calling you, and it'll show up often who it is if you have that programmed into your phone. And so you have a different sort of response. Sometimes you get a number and you think, I don't know this area code. It says it's Albuquerque, Bugs Bunny calling me. I don't know who this, I don't know who this person is. And you're sort, of, you're sort of leery and you give that, hello? And, you know, is that how you approach the Word of God? Is that how you come on Sunday? Sort of here, maybe? Or worse, do you, do you come to God's Word like an 800 number shows up on your phone? 800? I thought I got off this list. I'm not interested. Bye. God loves you. Just or is it like when you see on your phone, it's mom. Okay, at least that's how I feel. I don't know how you feel about your mom. <laughs> it's my mom. It's my son. It's my granddaughter. Here it is. Hi. Is that how you come? You're, you're eager. Come on Sunday. God's, God's going to say something to me. The Bereans here, they're ready to study. They're eager. Here's the second thing. They're persistent. They examine the Scriptures daily. That word examine can be used to refer to a legal process such as a trial. It's, it means you're testing, you're thinking, you're discerning. I really want you, now don't get all embarrassed right now, but I really want you to have your Bibles open generally when I'm preaching because, okay, maybe... I'll just assume you've got this passage memorized, okay? But here's why. I say this when I go and I speak someplace because I, I say, look, you, why would you listen to me? Why? You, you can't, there's no reason to listen because I can speak with emphasis. Oh, it's really deep. <laughs> and then I can be really loud and then I get really, really soft. And everyone is just, wow, it's really moved. But there's nothing, there's nothing there. Oh, he's funny, or he's loud, or he's angry. The only reason to listen is because, and if I'm speaking according to the Word of God. So you're examining, okay? I don't know, maybe you, if you want to go home and you examine it later, but I'm just, there's a reason the Bibles are here. So you can, you can test, you can think. You don't just, hey, whatever Kevin says goes. It's tempting for me to think that's a good idea. But if you think that about me, you'll think it about someone else someday, and you shouldn't. So whatever God says goes. They were persistent in examining the Scriptures. They, they're persistent to dissect it, to look at it. How, what sort of instrument are you when you come to the Bible? Some of you are, when you come to a sermon or you come to the Scriptures, you're a hammer, all right? And you're just... If you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You're ready to, boom, I knew I wasn't going to like that sermon. And you're just ready to, boom. Some of you are sponges, 
And that, that's good to a degree, but you just kind of, you just believe everything, any Christian book you read, any sermon you hear, it's just soaking up. That's not good either. You want to be a microscope or a magnifying glass. You, you, yeah, okay, this is good. I want to look at this. I want to look into that. That's right. That's right. It's true. And you do it daily. You see that? They examine the Word with eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily. You and I, every single day, are bombarded with rival truth claims. You watch movies, media, they're, they're, they're telling you something about beauty, about the good life. You read something, they're making a case, they're arguing something. You talk to your neighbors, everyone is making some kind of truth claims about what is good, right, true, noble, beautiful. And how will you know what is truly good, right, true, noble, and beautiful unless you are in this book? They had to read it daily because daily you're going to get other stuff making truth claims. You got to hear from God. The Bereans were eager, they were persistent, and lastly, they were submissive. And this comes back to the main point, the authority of Scripture. The Bereans examined the Scriptures daily, it says, to see if these things were so, to see if the things Paul and Silas were teaching were so. The implication is, if Scripture says it, it's so. Scripture says it, it is so. Scripture was the authority, okay? Paul's saying something, he's smart, he's a Pharisee, he's been trained by Gamaliel, he's a lot of people talking about him, but I got to see if Scripture supports what he's saying. Scripture has the final word. Now think about it, all religion of whatever kind rests on authority, In fact, every academic discipline, every area of human inquiry rests on authority. Whether you realize it or not, for each of you, there is something or someone who will be the final arbiter of truth. It may be your parents, probably if you're from a different culture, not America, your parents. I I, I can't... You just have this category. I I can believe a lot of stuff. I cannot go against what my parents believe. For other people, it's just the opposite. I, I, I can do a lot of stuff, but if my parents like it, I cannot like it. Some of you, it's your community. Some of you, it's it could be peer reviewed journals. It could be the so called assured results of science. It could be majority rule or opinion polls, or Wikipedia, or your impressions, or your feelings, or your own sense of right and wrong, or your own ideas of justice, or your own conceptions of the divine. We all have something or someone that is the final arbiter for competing truth claims, and what will it be? For Christians, in the final analysis, this authority must be and can only be the Scriptures. This is the point where to be a Christian is to be so humble 
so broken, so aware of your own sinfulness and imperfections that you submit yourself willingly to an authority outside yourself. There's all sorts of people that if they're really honest, the authority in their life, say, okay, I'm hearing what you're saying, but at the end of the day, I will not believe or do something different than my experience tells me. My experience will be the final arbiter of truth. What, what I hear from the culture, what the culture around me accepts as good will be the final arbiter. I cannot say something other than that. And brothers and sisters, that is not the Christian way of looking at the world. Authority is fundamental to the character of God, and therefore it must be fundamental to God's book. What is the authority in your life, in my life? What is it really? Not, not just what you'd say in your head. What is it practically? Where you say, no matter what anybody else tells me, no matter what anybody else thinks, I cannot go against this. What, what's that? What, what is it? It's what makes you happy, that what makes your friends happy, that what makes the government happy, is it what makes God happy, is it what the Bible says? Are you giving the last word, the ultimate word and the final word, only and always to God's word? Let's pray. Father, we submit ourselves to Your Word because as the Lord Jesus prayed, sanctify them by Thy truth and Thy Word is truth. To whom shall we go? For You have the words of life. There's no other word that will point us to Christ, no other word which is the revelation of Christ. So help us, Lord, so moved by Your Spirit in our hearts and in, in, in the hearts of loved ones that are in our minds right now to make us completely and totally submissive to Your Word such that if Your Word says it is so, we gladly say it must be so. For in this submission is true freedom, and in your authority is real joy. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.